Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... Austin is terrible, Mike, and it's Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Austin, what's new, man? Uh, uh, my mic is broken, as people can probably <laughs> tell me. It's like fifth, <laughs> fifth time since we started this podcast. Like <laughs> good microphone, too. It's the blue one, so it's not the cheap one. It's the one that you have. I don't, I don't know what happened here. But I got to look into it. I need to start building that in my CapEx expense in my life, you know, because I just, just have the tendency of breaking through mics. Um, what's going on on my end? I don't know, man. Like, uh, I guess, like, on the real estate front, not much, not much updates. Um, I'm still going through my refinance right now for the eight unit. Still taking a bit longer. They've asked me for, like, net worth statements. They've asked me for... Um, mortgage mortgage statements for all of my properties on my personal name, despite it being under another corporation. Um, they've asked me for like just a ton of things. I'm not sure why. I'm just getting the information to them as quickly as possible. So then I can go ahead and just refi and move on. Yeah. Um, one interesting thing that I was uh, taking a look at, I was teaching someone on my wholesaling team on running a number for a basic duplex spur. And as we're underwriting the deal, it looks like using 5% interest rates when underwriting a 30-year M, um, a duplex in Sudbury, the one we're looking at at least would be cash flow negative, right? And if you threw in a 1.7% interest rate, which is what we would have saw at the beginning of the year or end of last year, um, it would have been cash flow positive 300 bucks. But uh, mm-hmm. instead it's cash flow negative 200 or like a high hundred, something like that when you underwrite it with 5% interest rate. So <laughs> so I, I went through a similar exercise. I think I was telling you, Austin, I don't, I don't, I don't remember what we talked about in the preamble and what we don't, but um, I was looking at Scarborough bungalows. And so Scarborough bungalows take it back like six months or eight months or whatever after repair value would be like 1.2 million for like a essentially single family house with a illegal basement unit. Right. And it's not that you're cash flowing. You're kind of like quote unquote, like Toronto cash flow. Like you cover your mortgage, you cover your property tax, you cover your, your, your insurance. And like, maybe you're left with like two, 300 bucks or something like that. Right. No, like budget for CapEx and repairs and whatever. Right. You don't um, need property management too. Cause it's at your backyard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's self-management. It's kind of like, yeah, Toronto cash flow, Right. So then I was like, okay, like interest rates have obviously like jumped. Like we're talking about, it used to be like 2%. Now we're looking at like basically like 3.7%, 3.6, 3.5, whatever. Right. So I was like, okay, at what purchase? And we know there's another 0.5 coming in July. So I think if I'm not mistaken, I factored that July or in as well. The probability of 0.75 as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, so I didn't factor in 0.75, I factored in 0.5. But basically, long story short, I think I had to be at 950K after repair value for Scarborough Bungalow to work, right? Um, with the current rents the way it is, right? So essentially, what worked at 1.2 million after repair value a couple months ago now works at 950 which means purchase prices for unrenovated houses have to be around 800 grand for the strategy to even remotely make sense, which is absolutely fucked, right? Um, it it kind of shows the direction that prices have to go to, or what can also happen that like we very rarely talk about is either amortizations get longer or rents go up, right? Both very good numbers in today's market. 
Um, I think last time, like when I, when we were talking about like what was happening in the market, uh, maybe we spooked a lot of people on the private lending side, like a lot of private lending, like I had a conversation with a private lender yesterday, I think, or, or the day before, and um, they're definitely flush with cash. And it's, it's someone that like uh, a lot of investors use for flip and flip kind of products. Right. So a uh, pretty well-known name as well out there. They're definitely flush with cash, but I've been having more and more conversations with different lenders um, that are starting to open things up a little bit. And then at the same time, uh, I know Austin, you sent me that Reddit uh, post about, I think it was uh, another private lender, Mick with like about like 200 million or so that was restricting funding, right? So it's just an overall very interesting time in the market. Um, I did have a conversation today as well with the realtor who just asked me, he's like, hey, my, like, like from an investor side, like what are you seeing like other investors do? And I think there's two very different kind of categories of investors, right? You've got one that's very gung-ho. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And like, you know, I'm going to act with confidence. I'm going to cut out the media. I'm going to cut out the news. I'm just going to like turn away from everything and just like buy properties that are under market value. And I'm going to buy properties that three months ago, I would have been happy to buy. Um, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to cash flow. I'm just going to, you know, go at it. Right. And then you have another group of investors that are like, everyone's fucking crazy. The world's fucked. Right. Interest rates are going to keep jumping up and it's going to impact everyone's cash flow. I think the listeners of this podcast at this point must know where you and I stand, Austin, but it's just interesting to see. What I would say is, is that it depends on where you're coming from, from a capital perspective as well. If you're sitting on a mill plus in cash, then theoretically you can quote unquote average down. Like it's not the same as the stock market when you're averaging down because in the stock market, when you average down, ideally you're not levered. Right? And also it's more liquid. So you can always just sell and, and reinvest or hold in cash, whatever the case is. In real estate, when you average down, one, you're leveraged. Um, so you're susceptible to interest rates, right? Um, two, it's not a liquid, at least in this point right now, it's not a liquid asset very much. So if you have a little bit of gunpowder and you're like, should I buy now or wait? Um, this is not investment advice, by the way. This is just what I would do. I, I just got to preface because I don't want anyone, you know, if, mar- if prices go up, then <laughs> unlikely, but if it does, then I don't want people to point the fingers at me. But if you have a little bit of gunpowder and you're saying like, all right, like, let's ignore the news and just buy now you might be using all your ammo at the wrong point in time and it's not timing the market i agree but you have to follow the data that's available at the moment so i i agree with the sentiment of like let's let i guess like just put everything away like ignore all the news outlet ignore all the doom and gloom because that's what the media is ultimately and just operate business as usual um but you have to see your own personal situation and i have a Good feeling that a lot of people are not in the situation where they could buy four to five properties and leave all of the money in there without having any emergency reserves, right? So keep that in mind as well. If your game plan, when we always say it, is to refi, you have to definitely think twice. Um, I don't know if you've been seeing the markets right now, like outside of just um, the real estate markets, the, oh, yeah. the market, <laughs> fucking slaughtered, like absolutely slaughtered i think uh, yeah. yesterday was a four percent decline um if you just go and search s p 500 on google and you click on the last month fuck it, dude like it's just like straight down plunging in the morning i was looking at it from um for the last six months and i think it was at 4800 or something like that or maybe i'm getting my numbers wrong i don't remember but it was almost like a 25 percent drop since january is what i remember calculating 20 or 25 percent something like that ballpark right uh, crypto yesterday got fucking slaughtered. When you talk about like dollar cost averaging in, 
that's where you do it, right? Like I'm, I'm dollar cost averaging on crypto, right? I'll just put like 400 bucks every like two weeks. Like I wish there was like more of a system to this, but I just kind of like auto renew, it gets charged to my credit card and just goes $400, $400, $400 every two weeks. And I'm like, it's fine. It's more of like a safety mechanism than anything. It's hopefully I never have to touch those funds, but um, that's a lot easier of a way to do it than to try and try and dollar cost average in on real estate, which would be <laughs> pretty nightmarish. <laughs> I think we should make an episode Mayu, later on kind of how our investment philosophies have changed where we see the market going, or at least like take a look at a couple of articles and give our thoughts on it. That's right? not a bad idea. You guys, if you guys think that that would be a great idea, then leave us a five-star review. <laughs> better see that at 125 reviews and then we'll we'll make an episode on that what what else do we have going on my you want to share some news you share one news that's happening more soon and i'll share the other news <laughs> yeah so we're gonna have our, our our rise uh investing in the u.s webinar with thomas Lorraine. thomas is for anyone that doesn't know thomas he's a can i guess i don't even know how to say this probably but he, he's a canadian who moved to the u.s to california and he's been investing in both markets in Ontario and in the U.S. in a couple of different markets in the U.S. as well. So he's got that kind of Canadian investing in the U.S. experience that we were looking for. So he's been generous enough to bring on some of his power team members, his lawyers, his tax accountants, his uh, his mortgage brokers, which I think is a key financing part as well, to talk about how people can get started investing in the U.S. So for anyone that's interested, make sure you draw, you check out either myself, Austin, or the Bear Brothers, um, or the Rise Investment page on on Instagram for a link to the webinar. The webinar is going to be next Wednesday. Make sure you guys purchase your tickets. There are early bird tickets right now, and we are going to start marketing it on Wednesday. So it might be sold out by the time you check, but if not, make sure you guys grab one as soon as possible. And also on the sales tip, uh, another shameless plug, uh, Rise has released our first course, um, Mm. and it's all about wholesaling and finding off-market deals. It's an eight hour course that if you guys listen to this podcast and are a fan of it, you probably heard John Pye. He's on the, our, our wholesaling team or our, as in Waylon and I's uh, wholesaling team. We created an eight hour course talking all about wholesaling from dispositions, acquisitions, analyzing the numbers, how to build the business, or if you're simply just looking for a way to get off market leads. Um, we have tons and tons of course material on there, tons of free resources. Uh, I guess not free resources. Tons of resources included with uh, the purchase of the course. So the link is going to be in the show notes, as well as if you follow me on Instagram, the link will be on there as well. Um, shameless plug over. Now let's jump into today's episode. We have Jashawn. Jashawn is a young investor, only 24 years old, a personal finance guru expert with over 10,000 followers on Instagram, uh, giving 101s on personal finance. Not only that, he's a real estate investor who has invested in Ontario and has recently purchased a multifamily property in the U.S. Again, only at 24 years old. So he's definitely doing a ton. Tons of great uh, conversations that we have, not only on this podcast, but on his Instagram page as well. So make sure to hit him with a follow. You guys are going to enjoy this episode. We dig into so many different relevant topics on how newer investors can get started into saving money, building their wealth and scaling into real estate. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Jashan. Jashan, how's everything going, man? Good, man. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. For sure, man. And, and for anyone that you know doesn't already follow you on Instagram, <laughs> why don't you give everyone kind of a quick rundown of, of yourself, um, what you've been up to today, and, and kind of you know, why you're here? 
Yeah, sure. Been uh, posting content for the past year or so on just generic personal finance content. Um, and then it just investing, whether it's in real estate stocks or just anything around financial literacy. I've uh, been doing that for the past year. And uh, aside from that, you know, by day I'm in tech sales, by night I'm obviously creating content, investing in real estate a bit as well. And I'm just kind of spreading the good word about financial literacy. I feel like uh, it's an important component, especially when you're young in your 20s to, to understand all that stuff. So. I believe it's probably even more important when you're in tech sales, high income. And uh, I know a lot of people in tech sales with the high burn rates and uh, buying buying a ton of luxury things. So that's awesome. I mean, uh, I guess my usually ask this question, but my I'm gonna take I'm gonna take your turn. Um, let's get let's get to the beginning of your journey. So how did you get started? Um, I guess even before real estate into personal finance. And I'm especially curious because again, tech sales, high income paying, that's typically not what you see in the majority of sales or um, finance people in general. Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of got interested in investing, you know, around the age of like 18, 19, uh, bought my first stock in 19. And uh, I was just always kind of interested in to see, you know, I was making, I was working a lot of hours uh, in college. I didn't really love school. And I was like, you know, I didn't really see a clear career path some people walk out of school and they know like they want to become a doctor or something like that i had no clue i just wanted to make money um so i just kind of searching around for ideas learning how people got rich um started learning about investing and got down that rabbit hole and as you can imagine once you once you start learning a little bit of it you just keep digging and then you find new topics you find new you know things to invest in and, and just got really inspired by it i think um you know, a lot of people in the 20s kind of can screw up <laughs> their most valuable years when it comes to, you know, investing and, and laying the foundation out. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to spread the good word about it and get the word out, um, share what I'm doing on top of that and just teaching people uh, how to go about their, their finances as well. So how, how old are you right now, Deshaun? <laughs> uh, 24, turning 25 okay. this year. Okay, cool. So you've, you've got quite the, I think, social media presence on, on personal finance. And I understand, you know, wanting to give back, but I mean, what worked for you from like a personal finance perspective? And the reason I mean, also, I'm just so intrigued is, you know, to have the real estate that you have, to have the presence that you have, and, and even just, I'm sure, you know, stocks and cryptos and the knowledge that you have, I think it's quite impressive at your age. I was definitely still you know, hitting up bars and just doing stupid shit at the age of 24. I know Austin was starting his real estate journey, but still nowhere near as advanced, I think, as you were. So just curious, kind of like what, what you did and, and kind of what set you up for success. Yeah, I think some of the like advantages that I had, obviously, was um, for one, I had pretty good work ethic. I loved working, you know, so I'd work extra hours at jobs. I'd have like two part-time jobs and then school. So I think for one was, you know, I had the natural work ethic. But on top of that was I kind of had a bigger vision in terms of, you know, my money and where I want to go with it. Uh, I just knew I was making, I had a lot in savings and I was like, you know, what's kind of the long-term plan with it. Obviously I could blow it and, you know, buy cars and all that kind of stuff. And even the first kind of corporate job that I had, I had like a you know, six-year-old who was training me and asking me like, what I'm going to do with my first paycheck. And I was almost shy to even say that I'm going to invest it, but like, <laughs> it was just the first thought in my mind. So um, yeah, I think I always knew that working a full-time job maybe forever probably wasn't for me. And um, then I started kind of digging down and finding ways on how to, how to kind of get myself out of it, or at least have the option to, to get out of it. Um, you know, if there ever comes a time I don't enjoy working a typical job or I'm working 10, 15 hours a day or something, um, at least I have something to, to play back on. 
Cool. So then like when you, when you started working your job, I know you said you'd already had some capital accumulated. Was that like from part-time jobs and was that like, you know, just income that you had saved up during college? Most people graduate college in debt and it sounds like you were like graduating somehow with a surplus. So I'm just curious what led to that. I, I went to college. Um, fortunately, my parents were able to, to fund that. Um, and then I did my bachelor's degree after that. And but pretty much my entire uni was funded by my employer at the time. And so I stuck around with them for a little while to make sure I got, you know, out of schooling um, mm-hmm. pretty much for free. <laughs> and then um, also stayed at home man, just like saving as much money as I can. Um, a lot of people tend to like to move out as soon as possible. But for me, I was like, you know, if I want to you know, grow and, and invest at an early age, I'd have to definitely use those big saving, you know, housing is obviously a big expense that you can save on. And if you can live with the parents, man, that's like, automatic and huge advantage that you have. Um, then aside from that, just not getting into, you know, huge luxurious purchases. I could have bought a car many years ago, but I decided not to just didn't need it. Just borrowed my parents' car. Um, so small stuff like that, you know, kind of really digging into the big expenses that most people have, which is normally housing, transportation, or food. I basically was able to save on all of them. Um, and so I just worked and worked and worked. And once I had a bit of capital, that's when I, at 23 was when I bought my first, um, real estate property and from there it's kind of just went in an upwards trajectory. So, so what came first, the social media presence or the real estate property? I'm just kind of like curious what the timeline's like here. Yeah, first it was the real estate property and then, you know, I would say probably a few months later is kind of the uh social media presence. Um so tell me about yeah, the real estate property. Like tell me about what you know what what you did to get started in the first one. Um the numbers, if you're open to that and kind of like what that journey was like there. Yeah, for sure. So the first property that I purchased is duplex um, in Windsor, uh, obviously a hotspot then and still is now. And uh, that one I was able to purchase for 280, which now looks like <laughs> a huge bargain. Um, and so I, I kind of did a burn method on that as well. Um, got into the deal for um, 280. Did uh, renovations on one of the vacant units that was there. Um, spent about twenty five, thirty thousand dollars, um, just kind of basically fixing the entire unit, paint floors, a lot of cosmetic work. Um, got it rented out, and then basically a year later, I was able to, to refinance and, and pull out that capital. And immediately, like in the back of my mind, I always wanted to kind of start investing in the U.S. It was always kind of in the back of my mind. It was um, I just saw the prices in in Ontario, and I was like. I'm going to have to invest long distance anyway. So why not just learn how to invest in a completely different country, which is out of the blue, but I just, I made a lot of sense from a numbers perspective. So took that, uh, refinance capital and then uh, started investing in Cincinnati, Ohio. I guess my very, very little understanding of us real estate. One of the biggest things that is stopping me from going there is the financing aspect of things. A lot of people, from what I hear, when they purchase their first like property, whether it's single family duplex, it's an all cash. Did you have enough capital to purchase an all cash? Um, if you did, then congratulations. If not, like, what's what's the workaround there? What did you do to uh, get the financing and, and all of that in place? Yeah, um, honestly, it was a lot of just reaching out to people. Um, you know, if you search for foreign national loans um, or non QM loans. Um, there's quite a lot of those lenders and the lending system, I feel like in, in the U S is very versatile in the sense that there's so many different products, so many different terms. Um, so honestly, I was just searching around, probably reached out to at least like 30, 40 lenders, just, you know, asking, you know, or do they lend to foreign investors? What are kind of the requirements? Um, 
some lenders will require you to have a business formation already formed in the US, which you know, your, your cross-border tax CPA can, can help you with that. But really just reaching out to a lot of people. And then the typical terms that, well, terms that I got was uh, it was a loan. It wasn't all cash. I had to put down 40%, so quite a bit. And the interest rates are going to be on the higher end, which would be, I think, 7%, 8%, um, at least when you're starting out. I know that once you know you, you build up a portfolio, and I'm speaking with lenders as well. And now that I'm looking to refinance this property, they're they're a bit more, you know, they'll give you better terms, more maybe a little more more leverage, lower rate. But yeah, I think starting out, there's definitely options out there. You could get loans just reaching out and, and speaking to a lot of people. But yeah, I I, I didn't buy it all cash that's for sure. <laughs> I know my use of mortgage guys is probably going to dig deeper into no, that. No, no, no. It, it actually makes sense, right? So, so the U.S. as a whole naturally has slightly higher rates than, than Canada, right? Um, for various reasons, but we won't get into that. And then I guess with the 40% down to mitigating the fact that you're foreign national, which is very similar to, to a foreign national buying in Canada. So that, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, you're paying slightly higher rates because you're kind of on a B or private, some sort of combination of that, it sounds yeah. like, um, from a lender. So... It actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm more curious. So, so you're at a natural disadvantage. Well, maybe you're at a disadvantage to like locals in the U.S., but you're also putting more of a down payment than they are. So your debt servicing might actually be better than them for better or for worse. So I guess that kind of like offsets the both of them. Because my next question was just going to be, you know, um, going into a market where everyone else can buy at call it three, four, five percent. And if you're buying at six or seven percent, um, how did you go about sourcing your first deal? But before we get into that, let's talk about why you ended up at Cincinnati, Ohio, um, when you have 52 other states and three major cities, usually in each state. So um, wait, wait, before we, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not done with the financing topic yet. Did they qualify you personally or did they qualify the asset? Like did they look at your income in Canada? They, they qualify on the assets. So there's a lot of asset based lending, um, but there's some cross border, you know, mortgages as well. Like, you know, you your Canadian banks, they have branches there. You could probably get something under your personal name and much better terms, but um, I qualified based on, a, on an asset. And the last two things, amortization, 25, 30, 30 years less. 30. <laughs> 30. Amortization. So, so hold okay. on. why didn't you just go with the Canadian banks? Well, honestly, I didn't even like qualify for a ton of properties under my personal income at that time. Um, so I was just, I could have went to the Canadian bank as well. Um, they, they were a little bit more stringent on, um, you know, lending under a personal name with the property already in Windsor. Mm. Um, so they're looking at various different factors. Uh, I could probably go back and, and I might still go back and, and qualify at a later time. Um, now that my income is a little higher. So. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you've heard the same thing, but I think the Canadian banks, it's like, if you're going to buy a vacation home or like, a rental family that's like a single family duplex or triplex, maybe. Um, I think the Canadian banks are decent for that. If you tell them that you're gonna, because you, your your first property in the U.S. was a multi, right? It was a it was a sixteen, I believe, right? Yeah, sixteen residential. Yeah, so that might be kind of hard to swing as like a vacation home, which might be part of the problem. And it <laughs> makes sense why you went with the asset based lender as well. Um, Austin, can I ask my question now or what? So you done with the financing? <laughs> All right, perfect. So, so yeah, like I'm, I'm curious. Oh, I'm not done. No, I'm joking. I'm done. Go, <laughs> Go for it. Um, I, I'm curious why you ended up in Ohio and then uh, within Ohio, Cincinnati, I think you said as well, right? So like, what was that thought process? What did you, because like a lot of new investors, you look at the US, it's it's an overwhelming, like you, you think you think Canada's big and you're like, where do I invest in Ontario? And then you, you, and then you start looking at the US and you're like, Fuck, <laughs> there's a lot of options here, right? So yeah, walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, 
there was again I, I spent quite a bit of time just looking at so many states because look literally looking at the map of the u.s and i'm like holy shit there's like 50 states that i can pick from right so i really i looked at things that i couldn't get in ontario which was you know friendly landlord laws um obviously affordable uh housing itself which is an issue in ontario and then aside from that places where i could get close to that one percent even two percent i mean you could get a lot of that in ohio other markets I was considering Indiana, uh, Michigan, and even Florida, which seems to be a hotbed as well, but that's gotten a little expensive as well. So I just thought from a price point and also travel distance, because it was kind of the first property that I'm buying in the US, I still wanted it to be within distance of me able to drive there. Um, obviously it takes you know, a quarter of a day to get there, but you know, I could book a hotel and whatnot and check up on the project if needed. Um, so I wanted to be at least driving distance Obviously, in the long haul, um, as the portfolio grows, I could probably look at expanding into different states, but I thought just that starting point um, made a lot of sense. I was looking at Michigan, and Detroit was one spot as well, but I just feel like Detroit just quite isn't there yet. Um, and so the next best place was like, there's a lot of different markets in Ohio. There's Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland's popular as well, and Toledo. But I just felt like Cincinnati from a job market perspective and just you know population growth, um, stands better than a lot of the other Ohio markets. Gotcha. What do you, what do you think are some of the main risks of investing in the States? Um, things such as I know tenant quality can really be hit or miss in some places. Were there any main considerations you had when choosing the particular, I guess, city in, in the state that you wanted to invest in? Yeah. Tenant quality is obviously, I mean, in the U S especially it's uh, it's very much neighborhood by neighborhood and even street by street sometimes. Um, so the neighborhood that I was invested in is kind of a mixed neighborhood where like some streets you go on and you probably don't want to own property there. And then there's some properties or some streets where, you know, you got nice, clean, single family homes, residential buildings, a mix of that. Um, so that is one of the risks. You do need to know a little bit more about the neighborhood where I feel like maybe in Ontario, you could probably get away with having properties in a rougher neighborhood. But over there, it's it's, uh, it's definitely a different case where, you know, obviously naturally the prime rates and, and stuff like that. Um, are much higher. So being very picky on which neighborhoods you're looking at. Um, I did a lot of research, a lot of tools online. You could obviously ask your agent as well and tap into them and any investor friends that you might know um, in the market. So how, how did you go about deciding that? Because like, I guess you, so you decided Cincinnati um, based on kind of the, the, the things that you outlined, which was, you know, population trend schools, uh, um, you know, employment and so on. But it's still an eight hour driving distance. And like you said, it's, like we've all invested in Windsor, right? So, so Windsor, you, you have huge ranges of, of areas, right? But I think Windsor is still a little bit more, maybe it's logical, right? Um, and we have a huge, I, I think all of us can probably just go on social media and find someone else that's invested in Windsor. There's enough kind of learning materials for um, within our kind of immediate networks. How did you go about learning about Cincinnati? Um, how did you know you were buying in a decent area? Because that, like you look at realtor.com and, and there's properties all sorts of different price points, right? And if you just go for the bottom of the barrel, you're more likely than not buying in a really shitty neighborhood. So how did you go about like handling that? Yeah, so in terms of looking at neighborhoods, I mean, I know realtor.com, the US version had like, a, they, they moved it out, but they used to have at that time, you could see like where the um, high crime rate areas are and even low crime rate, and I'll just literally show you on the map. Um, so that was obviously one step, but also look at this website called niche.com where you basically have, um, you literally have a, a rating for each neighborhood. Um, and it basically goes to like kind of the nearby schools and even gives user reviews, people have lived there, right? So 
I was literally just going through those websites, digging through them, seeing what people are saying about the neighborhood. And then before even looking at a property, putting in an offer, because I had a couple of offers that were rejected prior to that. But even looking at properties I was looking at, I would look at the actual Google Street View and just kind of take a quick tour and look at people like, you know, are their lawns cut? You know, are there any abandoned houses nearby? Um, just the overall, like, overall vibe of the, the neighborhood. You know, if I got a good um, sense of it, then I was pretty confident that, you know, it would be a good area to invest in. And obviously looking at, you know, price to rent ratio and then tapping into what my realtor uh, mentions about the neighborhood as well. So I have your post open here on Instagram. Um, finally, the deal is done. One thing I want to touch on is your lender backed out of the deal. Can we uh, get into that? Because I, I like to focus on some of the struggle because everyone thinks real estate is just like an easy path forward, which is not, right? Like yeah. you you making it sound easy, but like there was a lot of shit that happened behind the scenes for you to get that victory and get it under contract. So what happened there and how did that result in closing being pushed back two months? Was there a negotiation with the seller as well? Let's get into all of those details. Yeah. So, I mean, originally I closed on it and I believe it was late October. Um, and I had, uh, I was speaking with a mortgage broker that was kind of, they help a lot of Canadians as well. I uh, invest in the U S and they're going through another direct lender and that lender, they were offering a great product. There was actually a fix and flip loan, which, you know, you don't typically get as a, a new foreign investor, but they were willing to offer it to me. And, um, can't remember the exact rates at this point, but I mean, it was a pretty good deal. It was basically a fix and flip loan. There's some work that needs to be done. And last minute, it was supposed to close, I think within 30 days, probably within the last week or so, the lender backs out last second, basically just says, you know, you know, we don't have enough confidence in the, in the buyer simply because it's, he has no U.S. rental history um, and no investing history in the U.S. So then I was like starting from grant zero. Um, and so I had to go back, you know, obviously work my broker to find if there's another product out there that can land. On top of that, you have Christmas, which, you know, delayed it even more. People just don't even work for like the week or two. So that, you know, it was obviously a time delay. It was stretched. At one point, I thought, well, this deal is probably, probably dead at this point, or I'd have to raise up enough private capital. But fortunately, um, we were able to get another lending product. Um, obviously, like I mentioned, it was kind of higher, 40% down payment, higher rates. but. I mean, I knew that eventually goal is to refinance out of this property. So for me, I didn't was too concerned, overly concerned about the rates in the short haul. Um, so that was kind of the struggle that, you know, obviously the time delay and just going through all that. Um, it's part of the process. I was kind of, I was kind of comfortable with it, but on the same token, it was just frustrating because I felt like I just wanted to back out of the deal and go find another deal. Cause it was just like, you're stuck in the middle of the deal and like, Mm-hmm. You know, you got this capital ready to deploy and it's just kind mm-hmm. of sitting there. So it was just one of those things where um, the delays can obviously add up. Mm-hmm. So tell me this, as part of like your hunting process, because um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to buy in like an area like Sudbury or like Windsor or like whatever, where like you can drive and like a newer investor, you still go check it out. You don't need to rely on like inspectors and stuff like that. Um, did you go look at these properties before you bought them or were you trusting your realtor and your home inspector? And then what kind of due diligence went behind that? Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I got under contract, um, based on kind of, I, I saw the six flex pop up. Um, you know, I saw some of the pictures put in the offer and then I put in a 10 day inspection because I just knew it was, it was a pretty good deal. It was just a matter of how much work I was actually needed. Um, so I had the property inspector go in and then also had my agent at the same time 
went in, made a video tour of whatever vacant units we can look at. And then also just the overall condition of the building as well. And the property inspection report, you know, took a, I told them to take extra pictures, extra videos if you can, and extra details just, just simply because I'm, you know, investing from a distance. But I didn't see the property other than that. That was my primary due diligence. The numbers that made sense as well. So um, that's how I went about it. I did visit the property prior to closing because, you know, that's another thing that I should mention is like um, the lender itself, we're not accepting kind of foreign notary. So I wasn't able to notarize documents in Canada. So I had to go to the U.S. I, I could have went to like Buffalo somewhere nearby, but I just thought, well, if I'm going to the U.S., I might as well just check out the property. So just the closing week, I made a trip down there. But yeah, other than that, I you know didn't have to, to see the property itself. It's kind of similar to how I bought you know, the Windsor property. I visited it probably once during um, while I was under contract, but a lot of the due diligence, I was just, you know, expecting and it made it very clear the expectations of my agent and property inspectors to, you know, that I am investing out of state and take extra pictures, videos, and extra, you know, pick out anything you can to, to show like how much repair is actually needed on the property. Gotcha. Okay. So um, let's get into the numbers of this project a bit more. What was the purchase price for it? And, um, how many units were tenanted? If it's not tenanted, I'm uh, sorry, if it is tenanted, what's the game plan there? Total rent roll. Like, just walk me through all of the numbers aspect of things as well. Yeah. So we got it under contract for initially 250. Um, and then after the property inspection, I was able to negotiate the price down a bit more to 240. Um, for some work that um, there's five units were occupied. One unit was vacant. So there was definitely some work that needed to be in the vacant unit. The tenant was just evicted. So basically you had to clean it all up and redo it all. But initially when I, when I acquired it, five units were failed and pretty much the rent range were between anywhere from 400 to 450. Um, so quite low. And then as soon as I got it under acquisition, um, I was able to raise the rents up to $600. Initially I was going to 700, but these were longer term tenants. So, I gave them an extra, you know, 30 days notice, um, a total of 60 days notice to, you know, about the rent raise, got it up to 600 and three of them, two of the tenants had decided to leave. So I had total three units vacant, um, which I've just renovated. One of the units cost of renovating that was probably total all in about 15 grand. And now it's renting. We just got 10. Are this 15 grand grade. Canadian or USD? Cause the other US. Okay, US. Okay. Yeah, it's labor and material. And um, yeah, and then got that one rented out. The tenant's moving in soon uh, for $700 per month. And now the other two units are just finishing up, which uh, I expect kind of the same range, $700 to $800 per month. Gotcha. The tenant laws there seem much more flexible. Like, do you know generally, so you, there, there's no like rent cap and also they miss payment. Can you evict, do you know, like, that kind of scenario of, of what happens and you know, if those come up. Yeah. So typically the notice is 30 days, there's no rent control. So you could raise it as much as you want. Obviously um, as long as it makes sense, I guess, because you know, if, if you're over raise it, just people won't come in, but yeah, no rent control. Um, and then, you know, if tenants aren't paying to three day notice from last time I checked, so three day notice to, to evict, send the eviction notice. Speaking to the property managers, like I was speaking to a few different property managers before seeking it out and, it's funny because like they had mentioned, like they were astonished. They were like, "Yeah, once it took us five weeks to get a tenant out," and I'm like, "Try that in Ontario, right?" Like, I had a tenant that I had to evict. It took me like seven months or something, and I went in Windsor. So it's true, man. And I guess like from the construction side and even finding your property managers, um, 
you know, how do you go about finding con- contractors remotely? I know a couple of people have tried investing in the U.S. and um, essentially been burned by like contractors that have, you know, seen the opportunity for out of town investor and just kind of ripped them off. Right. So. Yeah. So contractors, I've reached out to a few of them. Honestly, I found a lot of them just on Google, just searching and seeing, you know, some of the best reviews, you know, more yeah. people using it quite frequently. Um, and then a little bit on bigger pockets as well, just a huge tool for us investors, especially um, just seeing which, which, you know, contractors are most active on it. Not too many of them, but you know, whatever I found, I reached out to all of them and I had my property manager, you know, keep them accountable as well. So any, anytime the work was done, um, I was able to get my property manager to quickly check it, verify what work was done. Um, and then on top of that, you know, videos, pictures, you know, I was, I was like, they probably got annoyed at me, but I was like, keep sending me pictures and videos, you know, consistently just to make sure that all the work is getting done. Um, and then prior to that, I was pretty like detailed in my scope of work, um, like what kind of material I wanted it. You know, I even sent them links and SKUs from like Home Depot directly to make sure that they're not, you know, doing their own thing. And if it's not in stock, they cannot, you know, suggest any alternatives. But I was pretty stringent on like the scope of work that needs to be done. And, you know, just making sure that, you know, my property manager's checking up on the work as well. I know longer, longer, I'll probably need to get like a project manager or something like that to, to be on the boots on the ground. But for now, um, got the job done. Yeah. You sound like you got some pretty solid like team members overall with the property manager that's just willing to check in for you. And I'm curious, like, what's the property management rate in, in Ohio? Is it very similar to like Windsor, I guess? Yeah, pretty much like seven to 10% uh, per month cool. gross rents. So pretty similar. Yeah. So, so after you, after you turn around, I know you said you haven't refinanced it yet, but like, what are you looking at in terms of exit on the six bucks? Yeah. So ARV, like speaking with another investor just in the area, he pretty much purchased like an updated uh, six unit apartment and, you know, he purchased it right in the same neighborhood for $400,000. So being conservative, I think I can get at least 375 or above, but honestly it's a new space. Cause I, you know, six unit residential kind of it's, it's in between of that. Like, do you, do compare it as like a, a small multifamily or single family, or does it go into like larger apartment building? And honestly, that's something I'm still trying to figure out. I'll just be speaking with lenders on that and seeing how that process works out. Cause I've heard each lender will take a different approach, whether it's an income approach or comparable approach. So. Do you know what loan to values are, are looking like if it's, um, uh, if they take it as an income approach and look at it as a commercial building? 65% to 70%. That's uh that's kind of the, the loan to value that I've been seeing. Gotcha. So this is kind of like your entry into the States, a partial burr, and then you're going to take this and leverage it off into buying several other assets in the near future. Yeah, pretty much. Cool. Circling it back to personal financial quick. Sorry, actually, Mario, was there anything else that you wanted to ask on the real estate side? Well, I, I think it's good. I guess the last question for you is, you know, I, I guess you were initially supposed to close, I think you said in October. Um, which I'm assuming means you maybe bought it in June, July, August of last year, somewhere in that time frame, right? Uh, how has the market kind of turned in the last year in the US? Um, just given that your boots on the ground, right? Like, like I'm assuming you kind of watch the comps a lot more than other people. Um, yeah, what are you kind of seeing in the boots on the ground? Is there a buying opportunity? Are prices dropping? Are they holding? Yeah, I mean, in the US, um, especially last year, it's still risen similar to Canada. Um, Maybe not at the same rate, but like in, in Cincinnati, typically I've seen prices go up seven to eight to even 10%. And depending on which neighborhood, the, the C to B minus neighborhoods have risen, you know, 10 plus percent uh, year over year. So prices have gone up. Um, as of late, it's been slowing down a bit, 
but you know, it's still like you get, you see a good property on the market and it's pretty much under contract within a week. So the things are pretty much flying off as soon as, as soon as they hit the market. So there is still demand and it's primarily, I guess, because of lack of supply as well. Well, yeah, I think it makes sense. I was, I was hoping that the U S would, would drop a little bit as well, but it seems like, um, and I think, you know, myself and Austin have kind of theories on this as well. It's just like overall, like highly cash flowing assets, um, will kind of weather any storm, right? Cause like, what's the motivation to sell if your property is highly cash flowing, unless you, you know, distressed somewhere else and you really need your 20% equity or, or 30% equity, right? That's awesome, man. Tying it into, I'm not tying it into personal finance, but circling back into personal finance, I guess, before we wrap up with everything. Um, for younger people looking to get started, uh, maybe it's not even real estate investing, but investing in general, because real estate investing, let's be real, um, you do need a decent amount of capital to get into it. I know there's like other people's money, so on and so forth. Um, what is the suggestion that you'd give to someone who's listening out there who's 21 years old, maybe just got started in the corporate job and they want to get into investing and build wealth in the future? I used to always think like, you know, you got your corporate job and then start throwing your money into maybe the stock market right away or, you know, start throwing it into real estate right away. But I've learned a bit and I'm still learning this is like, it's, you know, whatever job you have, first ask yourself, like, how can you make as much money from it? You know, even if it's a job that you, might not love, you know, see if there's ways that you could increase your first active income first. And that's what I've realized too. And that's why I'm in tech sales now. Cause like, you know, it's obviously a lucrative career. And so I think the first thing is like, you know, focus on making more money because you always have time to invest. Obviously time is valuable and you should start investing as much as you can as soon as possible. But I think increasing your income, whether that's whether at your main job, or if you could pick up something on the side, you know, start a side hustle, whatever, there's like a million different ideas out there. Find ways that you can increase your income because once you start investing, as you guys and many of the listeners probably know, once you start getting into real estate, it is a capital intensive, you know, ball game. So, I mean, having active income to support it, you know, you're going to have those surprise expenses, especially when you're first starting out um, building your portfolio. If you don't have much money coming in every single month, you could quickly, you know, step yourself out of the game. So primarily, you know, your first, Early on in your twenties, focus on making as much money as you can, whether that's at your job or, or just you know picking up side hustles, and then start getting into to real estate investing. If you really want to, you know, dabble a bit. Obviously, the stock market's always there; it's easily accessible and liquid as well. So, you know, if you ever want to temporarily, maybe for a couple of years, grow your money um, at a steady rate in the stock market or something like that, you can put your money there, and then you can always take it back out and um, start investing in bigger assets. Well said, man. Yep, totally makes sense. One of my men- early mentors in real estate, uh, Mike Rosehart, uh, he was also super deep in C personal finance. What he said, uh, pretty much in line with what you're saying, just phrased in a different way, is that the easiest way for someone to build wealth over the long term is first and foremost, save more. Because uh, if you're spending it all, it's going to waste. And saving is giving yourself an instant raise, right? Every dollar you see, earning a dollar is harder than saving a dollar. Like, that's for your, <laughs> um, and then second, earn more, exactly what you were saying, right? Because yeah, you can save more, but if you're making a 30K salary, yeah, <laughs> you're not, not really going to be financially free, no matter how much you save and invest. And the last thing is invest. And, and when you're investing, focus on maximizing your ROI as much as possible, right? And when you start pumping all of those three levers, um, of course, starting with saving, earning, and then finally investing. Um, you're well on your path and you're, you're a prime example of that. Um, we're going to mix things up uh, this time around and I'm going to circle it into our final two questions. Our first question here is, is 
Um, what are your long-term goals over the next five years, whether that's business, personal, anything really? In terms of, uh, I guess, a business standpoint, um, in terms of real estate, I guess it, I'll continue growing my portfolio and assume in the U.S. Um, I'd definitely love to acquire a few more properties, at least over the next coming uh, couple of years. Um, so that's obviously one. And then on top of that, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of one-off coaching as well with um, you know, people in the twenties and such trying to get started in the game and whatnot. And so I'd love to kind of scale that out and actually have a proper you know, coaching sort of a business rather than just one-off coaching and one-hour coaching. So I uh, love to kind of grow that out and, and, you know, just continue using that money to, to continue funding more real estate purchases. That's awesome, man. So, so Sean, you know, on that topic, like newer investors, people in their twenties are just looking to get started in today's market. Uh, what do you see as like the bigger risk in today's market? Could be political, economical, I don't know, tenant risks, like various, anything. Yeah. I think if you're just entering kind of the market, you know, probably the biggest risk is obviously not doing your due diligence, running your numbers properly, especially as a lot of people over the past couple of years who maybe were just banking on appreciation while it's kind of slowly going away now. We're seeing the market kind of slow down, especially in the GTA and markets like that. So I think at this point, it's more important than ever to like run your numbers, um, make sure that you cash flow at the end of the day, just so you could hold on to assets. Um, and aside from that, just from a mindset standpoint, I've always believe in like, you know, limiting beliefs can obviously be a, be a, a big pitfall in terms of like your actual growth. I mean, I think initially when we just started, we're kind of thinking, you know, buy one property here, buy two properties, and then you end up just scaling up to a lot. And same thing in your own personal life, whether that's your career or whatnot. So I think just really pushing through those limiting beliefs, because you're going to come up against them every single time and just having a stand, um, strong mindset and kind of surround. And that comes with obviously surrounding yourself with, you know, like-minded people, listen to podcasts like this and, um, yeah, surrounding yourself around people who are all continuously growing. Well, that's awesome, man. So since Austin kind of threw us all of the schedule in our normal <laughs> order of things, Deshaun, I really appreciate you having you on the podcast. I think you shared um, a lot of nuggets. I know a lot of people were interested in investing in the U.S. and um, overall just making that leap out there and the personal finance nuggets you shared as well were really good. So for anyone that's, you know, looking to do what you're doing, how could they essentially get in touch with you? Um, are you taking on partners as well? I guess is also part of the question here. So yeah, how can they get in touch with you and are you taking on partners? Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can catch me primarily on Instagram. It's just Josh and Mundy. Um, and then I'll, I'm assuming you guys will have some sort of links uh, set out to that. And yeah, I mean, I am looking um, for partners. I mean, in, in the US, especially, um, especially once I finish up this project, I mean, I'll definitely kind of love to, to bring in more partners um, to hopefully do deals. Cause I know there's a lot of people who are trying to jump into the US now. So I think it's kind of sweet timing. Perfect. Okay. All right, Jashan, thanks for hopping on. And as always, guys, I don't say this as well as Austin does, but until next time, everyone invest smarter and live better. Take care all.